Chapter Two, Part Two, Autobiography. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Gary Gilbert. Autobiography by John Stuart Mill. Chapter Two, Part Two. Moral Influences in Early Youth my father's character and opinions it will be admitted that a man of the opinions and the character above described was likely to leave a strong moral impression on any mind principally formed by him and that his moral teaching was not likely to err on the side of laxity or indulgence the element which was chiefly deficient in his moral relation to his children was that of tenderness i do not believe that this deficiency lay in his own nature i believe him to have had much more feeling than he habitually showed and much greater capacities of feeling than were ever developed he resembled most englishmen in being ashamed of the signs of feeling and by the absence of demonstration starving the feelings themselves if we consider further that he was in the trying position of sole teacher and add to this that his temper was constitutionally irritable it is impossible not to feel true pity for a father who did and strove to do so much for his children who would have so valued their affection yet who must have been consistently feeling that fear of him was drying it up at its source this was no longer the case later in life and with his younger children they loved him tenderly and if i cannot say so much of myself i was always loyally devoted to him as regards my own education i hesitate to pronounce whether i was more a loser or gainer by his severity it was not such as to prevent me from having a happy childhood and i do not believe that boys can be induced to apply themselves with vigour and what is so much more difficult perseverance to dry and irksome studies by the sole force of persuasion and soft words much must be done and much must be learnt by children for which rapid discipline and known liability to punishment are indispensable as means it is no doubt a very laudable effect in modern teaching to render as much as possible of what the youth are required to learn easy and interesting to them but when this principle is pushed to the length of not requiring them to learn anything but what has been made easy and interesting one of the chief objects of education is sacrificed I rejoice in the decline of the old brutal and tyrannical system of teaching, which, however, did succeed in enforcing habits of application. But the new, as it seems to me, is training up a race of men who will be incapable of doing anything which is disagreeable to them. I do not, then, believe that fear, as an element of education, can be dispensed with, but I am sure that it ought not to be the main element but when it predominates so much as to preclude love and confidence on the part of the child to those who should be the unreservedly trusted advisers of after years and perhaps to seal up the fountains of 
frank and spontaneous communicativeness in the child's nature it is an evil for which a large abatement must be made from the benefits moral and intellectual which may follow during the first period of my life the habitual frequenters of my father's house were limited to a very few persons most of them little known to the world but whom personal worth and more or less of congeniality with at least his political opinions not so frequently to be met with them as since inclined him to cultivate and his conversations with them i listened to with interest and instruction my being an habitual inmate of my father's study made me acquainted with the dearest of his friends david ricardo who by his benevolent countenance and kindliness of manner was very attractive to young persons and who after i became a student of political economy invited me to his house and to talk with him in order to converse on the subject i was a more frequent visitor from about eighteen seventeen or eighteen eighteen to mr hume who born in the same part of scotland as my father and having been i rather think a younger schoolfellow or college companion of his had on returning from india renewed their youthful acquaintance and who coming like many others greatly under the influence of my father's intellect and energy of character was induced partly by that influence to go into parliament and there adopt the line of conduct which has given him an honourable place in the history of this country of mr bentham i saw much more owing to the close intimacy which existed between him and my father i do not know how soon after my father's first arrival in england they became acquainted but my father was the earliest englishman of any great mark who thoroughly understood and in the main adopted bentham's general views of ethics government and law and this was a natural foundation for sympathy between them and made them familiar companions in a period of bentham's life during which he admitted much fewer visitors than was the case subsequently at this time mr bentham passed some part of every year at barrow greenhouse in a beautiful part of the surrey hills a few miles from godstone and there i each summer accompanied my father with a long visit in eighteen thirteen mr bentham my father and i made an excursion which included oxford bath and bristol exeter plymouth and portsmouth in this journey i saw many things which were instructive to me and acquired my first taste for natural scenery in the elementary form of fondness for a view in the succeeding winter we moved into the house very near mr bentham's which my father rented from him in queen square westminster from eighteen fourteen to eighteen seventeen mr bentham lived during half of each year at ford abbey in somersetshire or rather in a part of devonshire surrounded by somersetshire which intervals i had the advantage of passing at that place his sojourn was i think an important circumstance in my education nothing contributes more to nourish evaluation of sentiments in a people than the large and free character of their habituations the middle age architecture the baronial hall and the spacious and lofty rooms of this fine old place so unlike the mean and cramped intervals of english middle-class life 
gave the sentiment of a larger and freer existence and were to me a sort of poetic cultivation aided also by the character of the grounds in which the abbey stood which were rayent and secluded umbraguous and full of the sound of falling waters i owed another of the fortunate circumstances in my education a year's residence in france to mr bentham's brother general sir samuel bentham i had seen sir samuel bentham and his family at their house near gosport in the course of the tour already mentioned he being then superintendent of the dockyard at portsmouth and during a stay of a few days which they made at ford abbey shortly after the peace before going to live on the continent in eighteen twenty they invited me for a six months visit to them in the south of france which their kindness ultimately prolonged to nearly a twelvemonth sir samuel bentham though of a character of mind different from that of his illustrious brother was a man of very considerable attainments and general powers with a decided genius for mechanical art his wife a daughter of the celebrated chemist mr fordyce was a woman of strong will and decided character much general knowledge and great practical good sense of the edgeworth kind she was the ruling spirit of the household as she deserved and was well qualified to be their family consisted of one son the eminent botanist and three daughters the younger about two years my senior i am indebted to them for much and various instruction and for an almost parental interest in my welfare when i first joined them in may nineteen twenty they occupied the chateau of pompagne still belonging to a descendant of voltaire's enemy on the heights overlooking the plain of the garonne between montbon and toulouse i accompanied them in an excursion to the pyrenees including a stay of some duration at Vener de vigor a journey to pau bayonne and vagrés de lechon and an ascent of the pic du midi de Vigeur. the first introduction to the highest order of mountain scenery made the deepest impression on me and gave a colour to my taste through life in october we proceeded by the beautiful mountain route of castres and st pons from toulouse to montpierre in which last neighbourhood sir samuel had just bought the estate of reticillier near the foot of the singular mountain of st lo during this residence in france i acquired a familiar knowledge of the french language and acquaintance with the ordinary french literature i took lessons in various bodily exercises in none of which however i made any proficiency and at montpierre i attended the excellent winter courses of lectures at the faculty de sciences those of monsieur aglada on chemistry of monsieur provincial on zoology and of a very accomplished representative of the eighteenth-century metaphysics mr Guéron, on logic under the name of philosophy of the sciences i also went through a course of the higher mathematics under the private tuition of monsieur Leterich, a professor at the lycine of montpierre but the greatest perhaps of the many advantages which i owed to this episode in my education was that of having breathed for a whole year the free and genial atmosphere of continental life 
This advantage was not the less real, though I could not then estimate, nor even consciously feel it, having so little experience of English life, and the few people I knew being mostly such as had public objects of a large and personally disinterested kind at heart, I was ignorant of the low moral tone of what in England is called society, the habit of, not indeed professing, but taking for granted in every mode of implication, that conduct is of course always directed toward low and petty objects, the absence of high feelings which manifest themselves by sneering depreciation of all demonstrations of them, and by general abstinence, except among a few of the stricter religionists, from professing any high principles of action at all, except in those preordained cases in which such profession is put on as part of the costume and formalities of the occasion. I could not then know or estimate the difference between this manner of existence and that of a people like the French, whose faults, if equally real, are at events different, among whom sentiments, which by comparison at least may be called elevated, are the current coin of human intercourse, both in books and in private life, and though often evaporating in profession, are yet kept alive in the nation at large by constant exercise, and simulated by sympathy, so as to form a living and active part of the existence of great numbers of persons, and to be recognized and understood by all. Neither could I then appreciate the general culture of the understanding, which results from the habitual exercise of the feelings, and is thus carried down into the most uneducated classes of several countries on the continent, in a degree not equaled in England among the so-called educated, except where an unusual tenderness of conscience leads to a habitual exercise of the intellect on questions of right and wrong. I did not know the way in which, among the ordinary English, the absence of interest in things of an unselfish kind, except occasionally, in a special thing, here and there, the habit of not speaking to others, nor much even to themselves, about the things in which they do feel interest, causes, both to their feelings and their intellectual facilities, to remain undeveloped, or to develop themselves only in some singular and very limited direction reducing them, considered as spiritual beings, to a kind of negative existence. All these things I did not perceive till long afterward. But I even then felt, though without stating it clearly to myself, the contrast between the frank sociability and amicability of French personal intercourse, and the English mode of existence, in which everybody acts as if everybody else, with few or no exceptions, was either an enemy or a bore. In France, it is true, the bad as well as the good points, both of individual and of national character, come more to the surface, and break out more fearlessly in ordinary intercourse than in England. But the general habit of the people is to show, as well as to expect, friendly feelings in every one towards every other, wherever there is not some positive cause for the opposite. In England it is only of the best-bred people in the upper or upper-middle ranks that anything like this can be said. In my way through Paris, both going and returning, 
I passed some time in the house of M. Say, the eminent political economist, who was a friend and correspondent of my father. Having become acquainted with him on a visit to England a year or two after the peace, he was a man of the later period of the French Revolution, a fine specimen of the best kind of French Republican, one of those who had never bent the knee to Bonaparte, though courted by him to do so, a truly upright, brave, and enlightened man. He lived a quiet and studious life, made happy by warm affections, public and private. He was acquainted with many of the chiefs of the Liberal Party, and I saw various noteworthy persons while staying at his house, among whom I have pleasure in the recollection of having once seen St. Simon, not yet the founder either of a philosophy or a religion, and considered only as a clever original. The chief fruit which I carried away from the society I saw was a strong and permanent interest in continental liberalism, of which I ever afterward kept myself au courant as much as of English politics, a thing not at all unusual in those days with Englishmen, and which had a very salutary influence on my development, keeping me free from the error always prevalent in England, and from which even my father, with all his superiority to prejudice, was not exempt of judging universal questions by a merely English standard. After passing a few weeks at Cannes, with an old friend of my father's, I returned to England in July, 1821, and my education resumed its ordinary course. End of chapter 2, Moral Influences in Early Youth, part 2. Recorded by Gary Gilbert, Wheaton, Illinois.